Hello! Hello, everyone! Welcome to the Lunarverse. I am your host, Dr. Charles Liu. Absolutely, you should totally call me Chuck. Thank you, and hi! We have today a wonderful guest. Before I introduce the guest, though, I must and always should remember to introduce our wonderful co-host, Alan Liu. Hey, Alan, how's it going? Hi, it's going well. Okay. Uh, have you seen anything unusual flying by in the past few hours? <laughs> flying by specifically? Well, yeah. I saw a wasp recently. That's probably the among Ooh. things that are flying the most Excellent. unusual. Oh, the sign of spring. I, of course, am mildly referring to the hubbub that uh, the Pentagon is generating because of its unidentified flying object. <laughs> I'm just saying that there are unidentified flying objects flying by me all the time, and they will never True. be identified. But you know, but you must well, have that one them. was a wasp. I identified that one. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> and our guest, the wonderful Jeff Notkin, the uh, the meteorite specialist, the star of TV's Meteorite Men, and just overall amazing guy, musician, writer, artist, performer, adventurer, and I can't wait to talk to Jeff. Hello, Jeff. Good to see you. Hello, Hello Chuck. Hello, Alan. Thank you for that wonderful intro, Chuck. That's very gracious Oh, it's my pleasure. You are joining us from New Mexico, which is, of course, um, a wonderful place to do geology, uh, but also uh, you have traveled literally all over the world to find meteorites. And you've said before that the adventure is really as much part of it as the actual finding of objects. Tell us a little bit more about that. I'm so glad you asked that. And now I, I somewhat regret that I didn't wear my Born to Adventure t-shirt. So I designed <laughs> this t-shirt years ago. Actually, specifically, the first time I went to the Sahara, which was a, was a dream come true. I, I love deserts. I lived in the Southwest the US for almost 20 years, but have visited deserts all over the world, partly because they're such marvelous ecosystems and, and partly because they're good homes for meteorites. And so I was getting ready for the show and I thought, oh, I should wear my Born to Adventure t-shirt. And then I thought, nah, it's just a bit, it's a bit too lax to wear a t-shirt, <laughs> isn't it? I should probably wear a collared shirt. <laughs> so out of respect for you, Chuck, I didn't wear just a t-shirt. But yes, I'm a born adventurer. I've got adventure in my bones. <laughs> I I love the wild places. I love the night sky. I'm a, I'm an I'm a, I'm a amateur astronomer, Wonderful. amateur paleontologist, uh, lifelong meteorite fanatic, hunter wow. collector, and I've I've tried to to wind these things together. My love of travel and writing and photography, mountains, volcanoes, fossils, <laughs> and especially meteorites. And it, wow. it is a strange truth in our business our world our world of space rocks that meteorites more often than not especially the rare or super desirable ones are in the most inconvenient places <laughs> so i have i've yet to find one in my backyard i i was i was many years ago friends with a with a meteorite hunter from new mexico named skip wilson and in 19, he was quite a very successful meteorite hunter and found, I think, uh, over 100 different meteorites in his career. And in 19, the late 1990s, 1998, there was there was a witnessed fall in wow. New Mexico that virtually fell in his backyard. Wow. He, he was able to walk to the fall site. And, <laughs> wow. and if that happened to me, nobody would believe me. Once I was driving home from Tucson Airport late at night and my car was hit by something really hard. 
And I stopped and I got out of the car and there was a significant dent in, in the in the lid of the trunk. It was a microphone. Uh, uh, it was a meteorite. <laughs> it was a something. <laughs> I, it, it was it was Freddie Mercury dropping his microphone. <laughs> yeah, rockstar heaven. So I got a flashlight and I looked all around and I couldn't find anything. But the the back of the car was significantly dented and some of the paint was torn off. And I thought, was that a meteorite? Was that a really big bird? Was that a kid throwing rocks at the car? There's no one around. It's in the desert. And I, I eventually gave up looking, mostly because if I then went public the next day and said, I was driving home from the airport. My car was hit by a meteorite. Everyone would go, he's just making that up. There's no <laughs> way it happen. Well, an unidentified flying object forever. That'll have to be. All right. It's time for our joyful, cosmically cool thing of the day. Uh, <laughs> I just change order every time you say that. <laughs> well, the ideas are the same. Joyful, That's cosmic, true. and cool. One or the yes. other, uh, they all come together the same. Uh, and I will say that this just came across my uh, awareness just recently. And I think it is so cool. Apparently, there is going to be an auction at some time in the near future. And it's going to include dead cockroaches that have eaten moon dust. <laughs> That is weird, okay? What? what I found out just recently is that it turns out that to find out whether or not there are any toxic issues, uh, issues of poison or toxicity with moon dust, uh, some cockroaches were uh, fed things with moon dust on them so that they would uh, uh, exhibit any symptoms of danger or concern. Well, and they never did because moon dust is just dust. And so now these cockroaches okay. have expired they have been preserved and now they are going on auction. I am amazed by this. I am just <laughs> totally surprised. And I will ask you right away, Jeff, what is the deal with moon dust? What, I have what... so much, I have so much to say about this. Story, <laughs> so the Go first thing is, this is not a fair test no. of toxicity because everybody <laughs> says, Oh, after the nuclear apocalypse, only cockroaches will be left. <laughs> if you wanted to do a toxicity test, you should do it on canaries. Not that I'm suggesting that we mistreat birds. That was a horrible <laughs> suggestion. But not one of the most resilient life forms. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two, I myself have eaten moon dust. And I'm, I'm on the show quite a while ago. So as far as I know, it's had no ill effects. So they could have just asked me. Well, that's good. <laughs> and... But the most important thing is, since we're since we're talking about that, I, I'm going to I'm going to tell you a way in which we get moon dust. What are we looking at here? Oh, uh, it's basalt. Tell us about this piece of basalt that's from the moon. Okay, so first of all, I want to be very clear that this is not an Apollo return sample. It would be a oh. federal offense for me to have that. So ah. we're not allowed to own private citizens are not not allowed to own moon rocks that were brought back from the Apollo missions. Okay. But we can still get pieces of the moon and that's what this is you're absolutely correct chuck this is basalt or basalt as we say in england basalt <laughs> as you would say in the, in the great united states yes it's it is a lunar basalt so this is this is cooled ancient lava from the surface of the moon wow, wow. alan uh do we have a question for uh jeff that just happens to be very appropriate for this moment. Mm, yeah, it's almost like we looked at our question bank and picked a question that would be relevant to Jeff's <laughs> expertise. Um, 
is how does a meteorite from the moon or Mars end up on Earth? Ooh, I'm so glad you asked Mar- that. Both Mars and the moon there. Uh, up to you then. Yes. Well, and and Alan, you you touch on a very interesting point, which is the, the vast majority of meteorites that we have discovered mm-hmm. and identified on Earth have no precise known origin point. We, okay. we believe that mo- the, the vast majority of recovered meteorites are from asteroids, mostly within okay. the asteroid belt. We have some from the moon. We have some from Mars. We have some from Vesta and a possible few other candidates. Uh, uh, asteroid Bennu, but that's in, in uh-huh. the, through, a di- through a different route. Uh, uh, yeah. We didn't fall here by accident. When we when you look at the moon through a telescope, what do you see? What what, well, what do we have? What a lot of on the surface of the moon? Uh, Probably craters. Geez. Craters, precisely. And those craters, in large part, are made by meteorite impacts. So there, we know there was volcanic activity on the moon because we we have basalt. But over the moon's history it's been pummeled by meteorites and the moon has no atmosphere. So it has no shield to, to diminish the number of meteorite impacts on the surface. So okay. when there is an impact of sufficient size, most likely a chunk of a large asteroid hits the moon's surface, pieces are blasted off, no atmosphere, less gravity than earth. So it's not, okay. it's not such a, such a taxing procedure to get them off the surface. And then some of those fragments, floating around in space, attracted by the Earth's gravity, eventually pulled in, fall as as fireballs, shooting stars, meteors, or names for basically the same thing. When they hit the surface okay. of the Earth, it becomes a meteorite. And if, if we find it and are able to identify it as coming from the moon, we have a we have a really solid, solid origin story. And to me, the most fascinating part is examination of lunar meteorites like this that was found in Northwest Africa mm-hmm. showed them to be a very similar geological structure to the rocks that were brought back from the moon by the Apollo astronauts. Uh-huh. So there you have it. This uh-huh. isn't a thing where we go, well, you know, maybe it's from the moon. No, we, it's it's without a doubt. We, we have numerous lunar meteorites. They're still extremely rare in the hierarchy yes. of meteorites. And so this is a slice. This has been cut in the lab from a piece that was, was found in the hot deserts of Northwest Africa. And we have a special technique. We have a, we have a, a, lab, a lab expert preparator who has a special saw that he made himself. And I've wow. been there and watched him work and it's a marvel. And he very carefully and delicately cuts these meteorites into slices, polishes them, and he has a special technique for collecting the dust that is ah. as a result of cutting. And so, so that that's is why how you eat moon dust. To have eaten lunar dust, moon dust. Did you actually like put your finger in that dust and like like taste it or or something like that? It's that actually cool. worse than that. I actually got a little granule and crunched it up with my teeth. Oh wow! <laughs> I told Did you I was a meteorite lunatic. No, that's fantastic. Hey. I love it. No, uh, it's it's amazing. So you actually have, you know, depending on how efficient your digestive system is, some moon inside you. Yes, which would really would really go with what my teachers and parents used to say about me when I was little. <laughs> well, it would explain, of course, why you are such a wonderful uh, meteorite hound uh, in the most positive and cheerful yeah. sense. So you have oh, collected. Yes, you've collected so many meteorites over the years, and and you are uh, 
we want everyone to know you are a private collector. You are a person who has gone and done this uh, very often for scientific purposes, very often donating them to nonprofit institutions or higher learning places, museums. But also, this is your livelihood. This this has been something you've done uh, as a commercial venture, right? Yes, and, yeah. and a passion. Yeah. And my my great friend and hunting partner and co-host on Meteorite Men, Steve Arnold, is, is a is a full time professional meteorite dealer. And you might say that I'm a full-time professional meteorite collector. We <laughs> had some very amusing instances. He, Steve, is quite fond of saying that I'm I'm his all-time best customer because we <laughs> we made a deal when I mean we're we're friends. We were hunting together for a good ten years before Meteorite Men came into existence. Oh, wow. And so it was Meteorite Men was not a construct. It wasn't like the monkeys where it was put together for a TV show. We were. Uh, television came to us and said, a wonderful production came, company came to us and said, we heard about you guys and would you be interested in doing a show about your lives and work, uh, which we did. We were very enthusiastic about it. But so Steve's comment that I was, I'm his best customer. We were, we were partners, we were teammates and we made some amazing discoveries and some yeah. of them were valuable and some of them were just beautiful. Some of them were too lovely to cut. And so Steve would go, I can't wait to get this in the saw and slice it up and sell it. And I go, no, no, Indiana Jones, it belongs in a museum over my dead body. And so there are instances where I have bought Steve's half of something that we both found. Oh, that's so cool. Actually, many times. It's wonderful that you've been able to make a living out of your passion. So many of us want to do that with our lives and you've been able to do that, which is really terrific. And, And at the same time, this is... You know, not just a, a matter of collecting the most or being the most successful business person in this area. You really love this. You want this to work. You want this personal mission of yours combined with the academic love or the study of meteorites to coexist. I think that's really neat. You should tell us more about that. It, it's so interesting that you mentioned this, Chuck. Yesterday, I was dialoguing with an old friend of mine, Libby Norcross, mm-hmm. and she touched on this idea of whether or not you should do the thing that is your passion. And for many years, I resisted going into the commercial meteorite world. This was, oh. this was my great love. And I, I didn't want to, perhaps contaminate is too hard a word, uh, too, too, too rough a word. I didn't want to taint my, my love of this field with commerce. Uh, and I felt that way for many years. And this is what I was discussing with Libby yesterday. Should we keep some things in our lives that are just magic and there is mm-hmm. no finance and commerce involved? And so that was my view for years. And then one day I had this epiphany and I go, why am I doing this? I, my great wish in life is to go to the wild places and find meteorites, hopefully new meteorites, new types that no one's ever seen before. And that's very expensive. Airfares are expensive. Renting four-wheel drive trucks in, in small countries that don't have many resources is expensive. Metal detectors are expensive. Medical help, we, we often traveled with, uh, with a local guide or expert, or in some cases in very remote places with a medic. So all of this is expensive. Where, where, does that, where is that money going to come from? I, I, I'm, I'm not a wealthy guy. I wasn't born into a trust fund that would just fund all these expeditions. So I decided to start a small business which I named Aerolite Meteorites. And, and Aerolite is an archaic word that 
means meteorite, particularly in, okay. in it's particularly a stone meteorite, archaic English word. Cool. And so the idea was, well, I start a, I start this, this small business and buy, sell trade meteorites and use the funds for more expeditions. Mm-hmm. That was many years ago. <laughs> Aerolite is now one of the leaders in the field in, in the world with a full-time staff and a real headquarters and an office in Europe, as well as in the States. And it became a, a real business. And I gave up my other business after some years and realized this is, this is all there is for me. This is, I'm able to do the thing that I adore all the time. Wow. And then you get into some very interesting territory. So, so this is the field of science that I am most enthralled by. Mm-hmm. It's important to me because of the, the wonder, the beauty of the material, but also there's scientific importance, there's financial value, there are international rules and regulations. You can't just go to any country and take meteorites away. You can, right. you can end up in jail or worse, as sure. some have. Oh, dear. <laughs> and so I wanted to educate myself on the proper way to do things and met with other collectors and reached out to museums and talked about trades and volunteered to photograph collections and published museum catalogs and donated material. So I meet a meteorite scientist in a leading university who's eminent, brilliant in his or her field, teaches, writes papers, does meteorite classification, occasionally gets out into the field. I'm out in the field all the time. So if I find material that they don't have and they can use it, why wouldn't I give a piece? I have the excitement of knowing, well, something that I found is in this museum that I've admired since I was a kid. And real meteorite scientists now get to do real meteorite science with it. And so we all benefit. Papers get written, new discoveries are made, the meteorite's classified, it's named. And it, it, it's beneficial to everyone in, in, in an obvious sense. So in that, that simple way, yeah. work gets done. But also in a bigger picture way, it builds harmony between academia, the career scientists, and commercial and collecting interests, the people who do it for fun or profit. I kind of think if, if, if it's okay to interrupt and, and just have, I, I kind of think like if you are a, a wonderful artist or an art professor, right, why would you not offer your artwork for sale, right? If you were a musician and uh, you recorded beautiful music, why would you not offer your recordings for sale? It seems to be a very similar thing that you're doing, only in this case, because it's science as opposed to art, people start getting worried about ethics and the ability to distinguish between a passion and a pure, as you would say, you know, uh, uh, science or, or the pure study of something or the admiration of its beauty and a, a more... Um, commercial thing so that you can eat and continue to do your research, right? It, it's an odd sort of dynamic. I, I, that's a lovely way to, to put it. Thank you. I'd also like to mention something you're, of course, very well aware of, and that is that many of the great discoveries in paleontology, in archaeology, in astronomy, in meteorite, meteoritics and other fields were made by amateurs, uh, probably especially paleontology. There, these were the great finds by people like, like Mary Anning, uh, a, a woman in the Victorian era collecting shells and fossils on the beach, her and her brother discovering the first ichthyosaur, 
these are really great moments in, in science. By the way, uh, that's not one of Mary Anning's ichthyosaurus, <laughs> alas, but, but it is based on one. <laughs> I don't know what it is about academia versus business. I don't know why, I don't fully understand why there's sometimes a problem. There really shouldn't be. We don't have a problem in meteoritics. Hmm. In, in the vast majority of instances, meteorite scientists and private collectors, commercial hunters, dealers like myself, not only get along extremely well, but we're friends. These people are my friends. I admire them. I'm always honored when I'm invited to speak at a, at a museum or institution or, or get invited to go into the lab and see the latest, the latest finds. So it's a pleasure and a privilege to work together. I think it's, and I'm not talking about meteorite science here. I'm talking about in other fields. I have seen blatant elitism. In, oh, no. in certain fields where oh. where some academics say well this area of study should be only for us and and if you if you if you don't have a degree in this you shouldn't be allowed to do it and that's oh, that's my. just that's that's a terrible attitude mm -hmm. and has caused a lot of damage in some fields like paleontology so i have spent my whole career working against that kind of thing and trying to set a good example and it's not only is it the right thing to donate meteorite samples for research and study it's fun it, it's <laughs> exciting how how great do i feel when i walk into a lab and i meet with a with an eminent meteorite scientist whom i admire greatly and he or she goes oh my gosh that's the best example of a mesociderite i've ever seen and it's something <laughs> that we found so it, it the the joy and the benefit spread throughout the communities and we'd be mad to not do that Oh, that's great. Thank you for doing that. Okay, we barely have time, but let's do this. Alan, do you have a question for us? Or yeah, specifically for Jeff? Yeah, so this one is from a student from Staten Island. Um, and this question is, what are pre-solar grains? And do you have any? Pre-solar grains. <laughs> this, is, this is probably the most interesting or amazing question in all of meteorite science for me. And it's perfect that we were talking about Allende earlier. Ah. So... A stone. Uh, let me let me let me start with let me start with this slice here. So this is a this is a this is a slice of the stone meteorite Vinales. I showed you a whole piece earlier. Yes. So, so here's a, here's a here's a whole stone. Here here's a slice. This is a chondrite. The most abundant meteorite types are chondrites, and chondrules are little tiny glassy spherical grains that formed in the solar nebula. At the, at the very dawn of our solar system. And over time, these little chondrules accreted, accumulated into larger masses. And over time, that's the origin of the rocky bodies, the inner part of the okay. solar system. So you might think, well, those are the oldest things that we have, would be yeah. those, those grains that formed before the sun and the planets would be the oldest thing that we have. But that's not actually the case. Because there are things that are older than our own solar system. So if we, wow. if we accept the, the 4.6 or 7 billion year age of our solar system, there were other stars and solar systems long before ours. Mm -hmm. So pre-solar grains are remnants of other stars, solar systems that existed wow. before our own that floated wow. through space had to be for billions of years mm -hmm. and were pulled into the into the solar disk around perhaps before but for those 
those chondrules were forming. And so those little tiny remnants of, of suns so much older than our own, of which there's no trace left, have been incorporated into these meteorites, making wow. them the Amazing. oldest things that any humans ever encountered. Yes, I do have some. And oh, wow. the end day is one of the meteorites that is that shows pre-solar grains when they're when they examined in the lab. It's it's not something that we'd be able to see with our own oh, eye. They're microscopic. But, then. Oh, I yes, see. but I find this one of the most enthralling concepts in, yeah. in all of science. It's it's difficult enough for us to just grasp the age of our our planet, and then when you when you think, well, but that grew out of the solar disk, which was which predated the planets, and but it goes way beyond that. So to me, really at the edge of understanding that there's this wisp, there's this tiny trace of, of whole solar systems, perhaps whole civilizations that existed and have long gone, nothing left but these tiny pieces that were incorporated into meteorites that landed on Earth. Talk about an amazing journey. That is 100%. amazing. <laughs> That is amazing. I, I can't think of a more cosmic way to wrap up this episode, but we still have so much more to talk about someday. Jeff, please come back. Even though your name is not Kin, I feel like we are family when it comes to the discovery and the wonder about the universe. Jeff, thank you so much for being here. What a pleasure it has been. Thank you. We'll do it again, okay? I would love it. Thank you, Charles. Thank oh, you, Alan. I love your enthusiasm. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Alan Liu, as always, our wonderful co-host, thank you for everything that you do to make this show successful. Thanks. Yeah, glad to be here. Glad to talk with Jeff. Glad to talk with you. Great. And for all of you who have been in the audience today, thank you for being part of what we do here. If you like what you see and hear, please go support us on Patreon. And as always, thank you for being a part of the Lunarverse. <laughs>